I just thought some of you may never have seen table soccer, so wouldn't have a clue what it is. So uh, anyway, there you are. That's table soccer. Um, some of you have played it. Red team against yellow. It might have been red against blue, whatever, different teams. Um, but the idea, you spin your players around to get them to kick the ball into your goal. Most goals wins. But imagine if you had grown up playing this game and never knew that there was, in fact, another game that was played outside called soccer. (laughs) The first time you heard that this game could be played in real life, you wondered how the players could be strapped onto these great long poles... (laughs) And you felt really sorry for them as they would be mercilessly just spun around. (laughs) Really? Could that be played in real life? Then you went to your first game of real soccer and you thought, wow, that's amazing. That's a real game of skill, a real game of strategy. I mean, that's up for debate, but anyway... (laughs) I knew somebody would say it. (laughs) Real football. Again, up for debate. But we'll come back and we'll think about that. That, That's a, a way of describing the difference, I think, between religion and having a relationship with the Lord. We can learn the rules of religion. We can even love it, like you might love table soccer. You can love the game, but to leave that game behind as we come into a relationship with the Lord that requires two-way communication, that can be threatening, it can be uncomfortable, but the more that we immerse ourselves into that, the more it becomes wow. And in one sense, I think this is a way that we can see the book of Hebrews. The writer speaks of the old sacrificial religion of Judaism, the old covenant, the tabernacle, the high priest, and how Jesus is now the fulfilment of all of that that has come before. That all of that that came before is just a shadow of what was to come in the person of Jesus Christ. In chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, the writer is revealing that Jesus is now our great high priest. His priesthood didn't follow the line of Aaron. He wasn't born into the family line of the Levites. His priesthood was similar to but even much greater than that of Melchizedek. For his priesthood is never-ending. We're told in chapter 7, verse 24... Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. The one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And so we come to Hebrews chapter 8. And the writer is trying to to tie all of this together. He's talking about the priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about the covenant, 
the old covenant and the new covenant, all in the work of Christ. And you might recall that early in our studies into this book in Hebrews, the word better appears more times in the book of Hebrews than it does than in the whole of the rest of the New Testament. And so the writer is is saying Jesus is better, better by far than everything that has come before, everything that we know, everything that we're so familiar with or comfortable with. So chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. We do have such a high priest, one who saves completely and the one who is now seated at the right hand of the majesty. In fact, this takes us all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3, and we find almost identical words in the beginning of chapter 1, that Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the majesty. In the earthly tabernacle in the temple, we know that there were no seats. There were no seats in the tabernacle or the temple. Why? Because the work of the priest was never complete, was never finished. He couldn't sit down and just go, okay, job's done for now, I can have a rest, take a break. Neither was the the priest need to constantly offer sacrificial offerings of either bulls or sheep or pigeons or doves. That was ongoing, never stopped. The moment that you rocked up with a dove to be sacrificed because you felt that I need to because of sin, then he had to do that. It never stopped. But Jesus is seated. The work is done. It's finished. It's complete by his blood, by Jesus' blood. The blood of the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And he's seated at the right hand, the place of honour, and authority. He does, however, continue to serve. He serves in the sanctuary, interceding before God the Father on your behalf, on my behalf, our behalf. But there's more. Just like the ad on TV. But wait, there's more. Jesus promises in Revelation 3.21 that to those who overcome, those of us who overcome, he will grant that we will sit with him on his throne. Now, I don't know how that can happen literally. Millions of people sitting on a throne altogether. But we will sit with him on his throne. I read somewhere that in the Sanhedrin, now that's kind of like the um, Supreme Court of Israel at the time, It was the custom for two scribes to sit either side of the judges in that court. The scribe who sat on the right hand would write down the acquittals, write down those who were set free. The scribe who sat on the left would write down the condemnations, the judgments, the punishments. 
Jesus is not only in the place of judgment, but he's also in the place of pardon. And so if we're to join him in that seat on that throne, if we're to join him now, we're probably more ready to happily sit in the seat of judgment than we are to sit in the seat of pardon. But we're called to be like Christ. Can we show mercy? Can we pardon? Can we forgive one another? Can we be quick to listen, as James says, slow to speak, slow to become angry? For the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Can we be less quick to move to condemnation and judgment until we've at least sought to be merciful, compassionate, offering pardon and forgiveness? Can we, in other words, can we do to others what we would have them do to us? It's in these verses in Hebrews that the writer also draws out a number of contrasts, a further contrast, that of the priest who serves in the tabernacle which Moses erected in the wilderness, a temporary tabernacle, and Jesus, our high priest, who is now in the true tabernacle, in the sanctuary, in heaven. This is more fully developed in chapter 9 about the, the things that the, were representative of the temple and the tabernacle which are, represent what's happening in heaven. But the main point the, the writer wishes to make is that now it's better. Now is better, is best. The tabernacle and the temple were only ever replicas of the real thing, the true reality in heaven. The tabernacle and the temple were meant to be a shadow or a representation of what was happening in heaven. And it's though the, the Hebrew people have been playing table soccer and they've now been invited to come and play the real game. What they had known before was just a reflection, a poor reflection of the real thing, albeit they understood and they loved this game of Judaism. They must now adopt a new and, and leave what they knew behind. We too must be careful that we don't fall in love with a cheap replica of the real thing. We can learn to love church. We can learn to really love church through a style of music. We can become attached to the temple, to the building, because that's where we were baptised. That's where we were married. That's where our kids made significant decisions in their lives. For various reasons, we've, we can connect emotionally with the building and we we love it we understand it we enjoy the game as we know it but we need to be careful that we're not falling in love with a replica or a shadow of the real thing 
And so we come to verses 3 to 5. And it fleshes out some of these thoughts a little bit further. Every high priest is appointed to both offer gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer, for Jesus to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. At the time of writing, there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned that when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern, to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. In short, Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all, for all time and for all people. And the tabernacle and the temple were but shadows in the Old Testament. was designed to point people to the reality that is in Christ. He's the real thing, the real deal, which gives the shadow its shape or its form. He defines the shadow. The shadow must be seen in the light of Christ if it is to be truly understood. That's why Moses could not deviate from the pattern that he was shown. If Moses had left out anything, then the result would not have been a true reflection of Jesus and his holiness and his redemptive work. And so once again, as you read the Old Testament, you need to read it through the lens of Christ or through the filter of Christ. Be reading the Old Testament with Christ in mind. And as our high priest Jesus accomplished what the ancient priesthood was never able to, Verse 6, but in fact the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Jesus' ministry is superior, just as is the new covenant within which we live. And the word new in the Greek doesn't just mean a new model. So when Les goes and buys a new car, he gets a new model. It's just another newer version. But this is not the word that is used in the Greek. This is not just an updated version of the old covenant. It's new in the sense that this is an entirely new concept, an entirely new invention. This is a new thing which is previously unknown. This is God doing something new in Christ that has never been done before. Entirely new. It's both new and better and superior. Superior by far. And God has promised this new covenant way back in the days of Jeremiah. Promised. Way back in the days of Jeremiah. And so a new covenant was promised which would replace the old covenant. Well, that assumes that there was something not quite up to to speed, something that was not fulfilling in the old covenant if there was need for a new covenant. 
You've heard it said, if, if it's not broken, then don't fix it. If the old covenant was working well, then there wouldn't have been need for the new covenant, for a new covenant to replace it. So the writer of Hebrews is pointing this out to those who have been brought up in Judaism and who love Judaism and are so familiar with it and comfortable with it. And he points out that it goes as far back as Jeremiah that God promised a new covenant that was coming. And in verses 8 to 12, in chapter 8, it is a direct quote from Jeremiah 31. It's the longest quote that the writer of Hebrews brings into his book. God found fault with the people and said, quote from Jeremiah, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Jeremiah was talking to two kingdoms. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. Go to verse 10. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. And you notice that he doesn't say with Judah at this time. But the people of Israel that after that time declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. The major difference now is that the new covenant is that God is at work in our lives, from the inside out, by the power of the Holy Spirit. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. No longer is God's law written on tablets of stone, but written on human heart. No longer was the law applied to just the two kingdoms of Judah and Israel, but now for all people, no longer for the priests, for the elite, but for everybody, for the young, for the old, from the youngest to the oldest. The temple of the Lord would now be the human heart. People will know the Lord, have a relationship with him, have the Holy Spirit living within them, be led by the Holy Spirit. They will be forgiven of their sins and their sins will be remembered no more. What a game changer. Imagine the Hebrew people, those who were brought up in Judaism. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to reveal, trying to to bring out, trying to say to them, what a game changer, what a radical transformation. God could live in my heart. And for his readers, the writer then crystallises it. In verse 13, the first covenant is now obsolete, outdated, and will soon disappear. The first covenant will soon disappear. How threatening was that for those brought up within Judaism, for those who loved their religion? It will soon disappear. In fact, at the time of writing, Something was already taking place on the horizon that was making the old covenant obsolete, which would eventually cause it to disappear. 
on the horizon. Within a, a few short years, the Roman legions under General Titus would besiege the city of Jerusalem and utterly destroy it. The temple would be demolished. The sacrificial system, all of its ceremony and ritual would cease. The religion that they so loved, so much a part of them, would be demolished. Where would that leave you? Sometimes God uses events in our lives to do just that, to rattle our cages, to upset the equilibrium, to shake us to the core, to challenge us, but always to draw us back to him. The days of the old covenant are gone. We're to live by the Holy Spirit, trusting in his power, walking in the light of his teaching. Jesus is the fulfilment of the law and he has brought us into a new covenant relationship with him. Not a religion, a relationship. And therefore we are called to hold on to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. What does the devil substitute for you in Jesus' place? What does the devil substitute? What old game does he keep taking you back to? What foothold have you given the devil that he keeps tempting you with? What's familiar? What's comfortable? Even though you know it's taking the place of Jesus as your number one priority. Now, even though we have the Holy Spirit living within us, we can't fulfil the letter of God's holy law. We fall, we fail, we sin. But we can trust ourselves into the hands of our Saviour whose blood has paid the price for our sin and know that God will forgive our wickedness and remember our sin no more. Isn't that part of what he's just said here? I will forgive your sin and I will remember your sin no more. Praise God. I wonder do you need to repent today? Confess your sin, turn away from it. Do you need to acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Do you need to ask for and receive forgiveness for your sin? I think we all need to keep alert to the ploys of the evil one as he seeks to dislodge Jesus from his rightful place as our Lord. I encourage you to respond to the leading of his spirit this morning. If you'd like to be led into receiving Jesus as your saviour, we can pray with you. If you'd like to rededicate your life to the Lord because you've let other things take Jesus' rightful place 
as Lord of your life. Again, we can pray with you. Make your response to him.